All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts now and uh, just have your way with us, Lord. Please guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 34. I'm going to say this. I just announced it a minute ago. If you're watching online or, or listening or however you're doing that, um, I would encourage you to um, get a Bible and sit it at your lap. I don't know. If I'm, if I'm sitting at home watching uh, church in my jammies, uh, which is fine, uh, um, just doesn't feel like it, it wouldn't automatically come to me that I should have a Bible in my lap. But I'm just going to say today, it might feel like we're bouncing around a little bit if you don't have a Bible in your lap, and I think it'll help you follow along uh, if you do. So it's probably a good habit to, I should probably say that every week, but uh, it's a good habit to have, and so here we go. So um, today we find, I have a new slide, by the way, with correct pronunciations, and you might notice that it's a little bit bold-faced. I was told that it might not be fully, the previous one might not be fully visible from the back. Um, uh, you can thank Apple formatting for offsetting the dates there, but just pretend they're in the center. And um, we added the dates and the spelling corrections. But big picture down to where we're at. Is that fair? Just briefly, big picture. Big picture, we're studying the history of the Jewish nation in the Old Testament during the days of Jeremiah, the prophet. Well, why do we study <clears throat> Why do we study the history of the Jewish nation? Two reasons. Number one, we see that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come from the Jewish people. And so we're tracing his history. Really, the whole Bible is all about Jesus, right? And so we're tracing the history of Jesus prior to his physical birth, the, everything that leads up to that. The second reason is we see very clearly how God deals with his people. And if God deals with his people, you know, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how God deals with his people in the past in terms of his character and a lot of the lessons to be learned are the same way he deals with his people today. And so we can learn a lot from how God interacts with us by how he interacted with the people uh, previously. And so that's why we study the history. That's why we study um, uh, this particular part of the history. And then just to bring us into this point of history, uh, during the reign of the son of Solomon, the nation was divided into the northern kingdom that's called Israel and the southern kingdom that's called Judah. By this time in history, the northern kingdom of Israel has been basically destroyed and, uh, by the Assyrians. And now we find ourselves in the uh, latter uh, part of the, around 600, 600 to upper 590s to 580s B.C., and the nation of Judah remains, but it's about ready to be destroyed. And so we see the tail end of the nation of Israel, um, the collective nation of Israel, uh, during that time before their destruction and their punishment. Um, God doesn't throw them away. God will preserve a remnant. That's a part of the prophecy as well. But, so we see a lot of history. We see a lot of the, the um, sort of the... Uh, the, the leading up to the time of Jesus, we see how God is dealing with his people, and so that's why we're here. And so, um, the last good king of the nation of Judah was a man by the name of 
Josiah. Josiah, anybody want to, if you didn't know, if you just walked in here completely like, you've never seen this slide before. A few of you have never seen this slide before. You want to guess how many sons Josiah had? Like, just want to guess. Three. Three. Very good. Anybody want to guess what their names were? Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, right? Josiah was running out of J's. By the time he got to Zedekiah, he's losing creativity, so it became Zedekiah. And Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin. And so this is important to kind of keep in mind because sometimes they can be confusing. But after the death of Josiah, his son Jehoahaz reigned for three months, and then he was carried off by the Egyptians. They put in place a guy named Jehoiakim, who, who began his reign at 609 B.C. He reigned for roughly 11 years. And uh, he was then taken off to Babylon. Okay? And the Babylonians put in a guy named Jehoiachin, uh, who only lasted for three months. He's also called Jeconiah. So if you see that in the scripture, sometimes that can be confusing. But Jehoiachin and Jeconiah are the same person. He only is there for three months, and then the king of Babylon puts Zedekiah on the throne, and he reigns for 11 years as well. So you got three months, 11 years, and I know it's on the dates there, if you add them up, they're 12 years, but, you know, there's overlap of months and stuff like that. But anyway, for practical purposes, round numbers, we'll say three months, 11 years, three months, and then 11 years. Does that make sense? And here's the other thing to keep in mind. The Babylonians, by this time that we're reading about, have, have sort of taken over, or not taken over, but they've sort of, of had these battle skirmishes where they've sort of conquered Jerusalem already twice. The first was in 609 B.C. during the reign of Je- Jehoiakim, and the second one was in 597 B.C. when Jehoiachin was removed and Zedekiah was put in place. Does that make sense? And then the final demise of Jerusalem is in most people would say 586 BC, some say 587, but anyway, in that range. So that's sort of the historical setting that we're reading about. And the reason that I, that I kind of want to bring this up today, the events, Jeremiah doesn't write chronologically. We, in our understanding of history, we usually read things chronologically. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And like, if you're looking at American history, you probably wouldn't read about the Revolutionary War and the, and the Civil War in the same chapter right? But Jeremiah and a lot of the Old Testament writers and a lot of ancient literature is written that way. It's more written by topics and that sort of thing. So I tell you all that to say chapter 34 of Jeremiah is during the reign of Zedekiah, but then chapter 35 is during the reign of Jehoiakim. So don't be confused by that. I think it helps us to kind of put these things in their time sequence. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? All right. Thank you, Earl. All right, Jeremiah chapter 34. The word, of the, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the, into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. Now, I've mentioned that so far there have been a couple of skirmishes with 
uh, Jerusalem, but this time it would appear, if, if Jeremiah is correct, that the time is coming in the near future when it's going to be level, right? The city's going to be burned with fire. That's not like a, a skirmish. That's a destruction, right? And so uh, the city's going to be burned with fire. So we need a little bit of backstory, okay? So bear with me for a second on a little bit of historical backstory, and, I'm, and I apologize for all the historical backstory, but I think it helps. So the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all of his armies, and it even says um, all the kingdoms under the, of the earth under his dominion. So by this time, Nebuchadnezzar and the king, of, the king of Babylon has conquered pretty much everybody around, and even those nations now are part of the army that's now surrounding Jerusalem, sort of the last main stronghold of the nation of Judah, right? And they, you just think about it in terms of, you know, every, every generation has its own military strategy, right? And, um, you know, even in our, in our lifetime, we've seen sort of different military strategies evolve, if you will. And in the ancient world, the classic military strategy is, you know, the defensive strategy is we live inside a walled city, right? We live inside a walled city. We can shoot from the, you know, outside the walled city or throw rocks or, or whatever. And that's kind of our defense, well, the offense against that is we just surround the walled city. Don't let anybody out or anybody in. No supplies get in. No food gets in. No water gets in. You sit there on the outside of the city for, I don't know, a year and a half, two and a half years, right, as the Babylonians did. Um, and next thing you know, by the time you want to take that walled city, people inside are pretty weak, right? They're pretty easy targets. And so that's basically how this played out. But um, historians say that somewhere during the midst of this, it's called a siege, somewhere during the midst of this siege, uh, Nebuchadnezzar left his post, if you will, and, and at least some of the soldiers left their post to go, because they had a little bit of a distraction from Egypt, Right? Egypt was coming up, and maybe Egypt was going to help Jerusalem. Maybe Jerusalem sought help from Egypt. But all we know is historians say that Nebuchadnezzar kind of left for a little time. And so if you're inside Jerusalem and you realize, you know, you're looking outside the wall, and there goes Nebuchadnezzar off to, to Egypt, you think, maybe we got a little bit of hope. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar's kind of backing off a little bit, Right. Maybe the Egyptians are going to help us. And um, if we look ahead at verses 6 and 7, we, we see uh, Jeremiah the prophet spoke these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. So that's significant. So these cities happen to be um, 18 and 23 miles southwest of, of Jerusalem, respectively. So you got these cities that are southwest of Jerusalem. What else is southwest of Jerusalem? A little farther down. Egypt, right? So there's these last two holdout cities besides Jerusalem that are yet to be captured by the Babylonians, and maybe we can kind of use the strength of them to get help from the Egyptians, right? Does this sound like eighth grade history yet? Sorry. 
But it's cool though, right? Because it's biblical history. It's still fun, right? Just like eighth grade history was fun, right? So this is still fun. So some people, here's the point in all this. Some people would say, the Babylonians are surrounding us for a long time. They've, they've sort of picked us off a couple of times already in 605 and 597 B.C., they picked us off a couple times already. Jeremiah has been given that annoying prophecy now for decades that says sooner or later Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to take us out. That's an annoying prophecy. But we still got these two cities down, left down below on the way to Egypt. And I think we could probably get some help from Egypt, and it looks like it might even be working because Nebuchadnezzar has to get distracted to go fight off Egypt, right? So that's not like a strategy if you're one of the citizens inside Jerusalem or maybe even Zedekiah himself. Would you put much stock in the Egyptians? Thank you. Judah's problem was not political. It was spiritual. Catch this. Their problem was not political. It was not strategic. It was spiritual. Why are they going down as a nation in the first place? Because they've rejected the Lord. Because they have rejected the Lord. Right? Because of their sin and their refusal to repent, they're fighting against God, but they think they're fighting against Babylon. Does that apply to our lives? What does Ephesians chapter 6 tell us? Our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood, but against basically the demonic forces in the heavenly realms. Right? So if you're fighting against Babylon... If Babylon really is your enemy, it makes sense to go to Egypt and look for help. But if you're fighting against God, it makes sense to repent. Right? As a matter of fact, if you're fighting against God, the only thing that makes sense is to repent. A stupid thing to do if you're fighting against God is to look to Egypt for help. Right? And it's not going to work. How does that apply to our lives? We as human beings engage in a lot of fights, if you will, right? Anybody ever been involved in a fight? Physical or otherwise? Mostly otherwise, right? I mean, we're too. <clears throat> Most of us are just too old for that, right? Otherwise. We all get involved in fights of various kinds, right? I would submit that more often than not, we incorrectly identify the enemy. Does that make sense? We think the enemy is Babylon, but really the enemy is our flesh or spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? But, you know, we think, man, my wife is so grumpy. Man, she's just hard. You got to know my wife. It's easy for you to say, but you ought to know my wife, right? Well, it's easy for you to say, but you ought to know my boss. 
Well, it's easy for you to say, but you ought to know my next door neighbor. Well, it's easy for you to say, but you ought to know my mother-in-law, right? Pick your supposed enemy, right? And I'm not saying it's always like the demons, right? I'm just saying very often we get so focused on this is the enemy and this is not really the enemy. And we need to draw back and ask the Lord for wisdom. Lord, is there anything I need to do? First of all, do I need to repent of anything? First of all, do I need to repent of anything? King David said, Lord, search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's first. Secondly, Lord, do I need to make it right with somebody? And to be fair, sometimes, and and I've seen this a lot, sometimes Romans tells us, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. You know, we all have different personalities. For a long time in my life, my personality was, I'm, I'm a little bit of a driver, right? And so for a long time in my life, I just, I thought, man, if I can just get in there and get that person to a point of understanding, they'll understand what I'm talking about and everything's going to be great, right? Ever been that? Ever tried that technique? Right? (laughs) Stop trying that, right? I had to learn to stop trying that, right? And what I've found, sometimes, first of all, ask yourself, ask the Lord, Is there something I need to repent of? Second of all, ask the Lord, is there somebody I need to get right with? Sometimes things need to play themselves out. I'll just say that's just how life works, right? And sometimes uh, when you get in there to try to make it right, you could do more harm than good. Fair enough? And sometimes you just need to drop back and, and pause and pray. And even at that, I say... Sometimes you just need to pause and pray, as if that's like the default, well, like there's nothing else to do, right? But how powerful is that? How powerful is that? If, in fact, we correctly identify that the enemy is the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, right? It may not be your wife. It may be the enemy of your soul that would love to see division between you and your wife, right? And prayer may be according to Ephesians chapter 6, a good weapon for that. So, all that to say, if your battle's against Babylon, sure, fight Babylon, look for Egypt, do whatever you want to do, but very few of our battles in life are against Babylon. Most of them are against our flesh or the enemy or something else like that. And notice again, please, the patience of God. I've pointed this out so many times. The patience of God in warning Zedekiah that destruction is coming. One thing you say about Zedekiah is he goes down in the history books as a guy who was warned. Who was warned. And it gets a little more specific. And you, Zedekiah, verse 3, shall not escape from his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, but you shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. So this is very literally fulfilled. Uh, we read this in, I uh, uh, believe, chapter 37, uh, we get to it. Um, but what will, what will happen is, 
um, when Babylon is finally overtakes Jerusalem, Zedekiah, in his great courage and, and leadership uh, uh, endeavors, tries to sneak out the back door, right, and run. Because that's all he's got left. So he goes out the back door and runs. They overtake him in the wilderness, right? He and his sons, and the, he meets Nebuchadnezzar, as it says here, face to face, looks him eye to eye. The last thing he sees on this life, in this life, is Nebuchadnezzar killing his sons before his eyes, and then they gouge out his own eyes and they carry him off to Babylon, where he dies later in Babylon. And I tried to look this up. Uh, apparently, it's not Googleable. But I was like, in my mind, I'm like, how long did he live as a blind prisoner in Babylon? I couldn't find the answer to that. So if anybody can find that answer, I'd, I'd love to know it. But we can presume at least for a while he dies in Babylon. Because look at this. He says, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you. You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace. So it's kind of like in Babylon, it's like he's going to die of natural causes. Right? As in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. I am blown away, blown away by God's patience with this man, Zedekiah, who treated him with nothing but disdain. Amazing. Now, we don't know anything really of the history, from the history pages of what happened after Zedekiah goes off to Babylon. Maybe he got right with the Lord. You know, at some point, at some point, you would think, okay, let's see, Jeremiah said that thing for, said for decades things are going to go bad. And then they came in 605 B.C., and kind of took off a bunch of prisoners. Maybe that was a fluke. And then they came again in 597 B.C., took off a bunch of prisoners. Maybe that was a fluke. And then they surrounded us for a year and a half, two and a half years, depending on which historian you believe. And um, maybe they were going to go off to Egypt, and maybe we had a little bit of a reprieve. But sure enough, the word of the Jeremiah came, came literally as exactly as, as he said it would. And here I am in Babylon, a blind prisoner. At some point, would you think, I think Jeremiah was right. And the other part of what Jeremiah said was, I should repent. So if Jeremiah was right on all that, then maybe I should repent on this. But I'll tell you another thing I've noticed lately. I've been reading through, many of you have been reading through Genesis and Exodus lately, right? We're reading through the Bible in a year. There's something I noticed about Pharaoh. You've heard me say before, many of you heard me say before, and I always think about it in the context of Samson, sin makes you what? Stupid. stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Hey, Samson, what's the secret of your great strength? Well, you know, if you just braid my hair, I'll lose all my strength. She braids his hair, right? And she says, hey, I got a bunch of Philistines in the closet. They're going to come and overtake you. No, I was just kidding. Boom, boom, dead Philistines, Right? She says, Samson, honey, you lied to me. You betrayed me. Okay, well, 
if you do this and this and this. And he gets closer and closer and closer to actually his hair, right? And then finally, uh, she cuts off all of his hair while he's asleep. And he realizes the hard way that he's lost his strength, right? What would you call that? Stupid. Well, there's another thing that causes stupidity. It's still in the context of sin, but outside of lust. Uh, there's another thing that causes stupidity. It's hardness of heart, right? You think about it. Hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. No. All right, fine. If you don't let my people go, I'm going to make all the, you know, you can go down the list. I forget the exact order, but, you know, I'm going to make all the water turn to blood. I dare you. Boom, all the water turned to blood. At that point, we would think, because we're logical creatures, right? Super logical creatures, very rock solid in our thinking. We would think, oh, Pharaoh's wrong, Moses is right, and so the other part of what Moses is saying must be right, and that is he's serving the Lord God Almighty, and the Lord God Almighty is, in fact, the Lord God Almighty. And it would not go well with me if I continue to refuse to honor his requests. Wouldn't we think that'd be reasonable? The hard heart makes you stupid. Lust makes you stupid, right? Lots of sin makes you stupid, but one of the sins that makes you very stupid is a hardened, bitter heart. Just be careful about that. Just be very careful about that. And so Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know if, he, if his heart softened after he got into Babylon or not. But anyway, that's the story on Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah. But that's the story on Zedekiah. He winds up getting carried off, and there you go. Now, the rest of this chapter, I'm going to read it in one block, and then we're going to go back and unpack it a little bit. Is that okay? So I'm just kind of preparing you, right? Because you expect me to read one or two verses and then stop and talk usually with some historical background, like eighth grade. But I'm going, to do the, the rest, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter now, and then we're going to unpack it. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now, when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. So they kind of made this deal as a, as a, as a people, sort of during this Babylonian siege, it would appear, during the reign of Zedekiah, that they make this covenant with the people that they're going to let their slaves go, their Jewish brethren who are slaves. But afterward, they changed their minds, and they made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, every man... Let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ears. So part of the Old Testament law was that um, if somebody was sort of an indentured servant or sold into slavery for whatever reason, usually it was poverty, but for sold into slavery for whatever reason, they worked for the master for six years. At the end of the six years, the master lets them go free unless they choose to remain a slave forever. Like if they, are, if they love that 
master, and they willingly want to serve that master forever, they could choose to do that. We get the idea of the bondservant, right? Paul calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? He means he, he willingly is offering his life as a service to Jesus Christ forever, right? So we see that picture from the Old Testament idea of slavery. But in this context, basically, you're supposed to let these guys go every six years, and you never did it. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to be, made, to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the half in t- the calf, I'm sorry, in two, and pressed and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds and, the he- and of, the heaven, of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. So there's a reference that... The king of Babylon and his army, at least part of them, had gone sort of away. They're going to come back. They've gone from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city after they had the skirmish with the Egyptians. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. And so, the Old Testament said that a slave had to be released every six years unless he wanted to stay. So the people hadn't done that. But briefly, it appears that they made a covenant to release the slaves, right? Verse 15, then you recently turned and did what was right in my, eye, in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Now, so you got these Jewish people who have rejected God. They've turned to idol worship, right? They've... they've They've snubbed the warnings of Jeremiah. They've snubbed the warnings of all the prophets. The Babylonians have got them surrounded. And they say, you know what we ought to do? We should release our slaves. Now, do you wonder about their motives? Well, I wonder about their motives because they didn't stick to it. Number one, right? Number two, why would you suddenly release your slaves in the midst of a siege. Some would say, and I think this is reasonable, some would say maybe they're trying to win points with God. And I think this brings up another teaching point with us, right? About a hundred and a few years before this, you may recall, um, Hezekiah was on the throne in Jerusalem. The Assyrians had been wiping everybody out in the northern kingdom and elsewhere, and the Assyrians were now 
coming to Jerusalem, and they, and they had Jerusalem surrounded in a siege. Many of you remember the story. And uh, the way that played out, uh, Hezekiah prayed, uh, the people sought the Lord, blah, blah, blah. They woke up one morning, and there's, I believe, 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers surrounding the city, right? So maybe if you're Judah, if you're Jerusalem now, you've been rejecting the Lord all along. Maybe, and it appears that relying on Egypt didn't work. Maybe religious lip service will appease God, make him happy, and he'll, he'll give us a miracle like he gave uh, during the days of Hezekiah. Is that reasonable? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Do we ever do that? Do we ever appease God? Do we ever think, ask yourself this honestly, ask yourself this question very honestly, do you think somehow if you obey the Lord, He'll like you more? Chew on that one. If you do everything right, and if this book's not thick enough, I'll give you a few more rules, like the Jewish people did. Right? And if you obey all those rules, somehow you'll be in better graces with God, and He'll return the favor of your obedience by blessing you with a solution to whatever that crisis of the day you have might be. Anybody ever thought like that, remotely like that? I think we all do it at some time or another. I think we all do it sometime or another. Can I, again, try to make one point perfectly clear? I set you up, right, so you know that the answer to that is, like, would obeying God make him like you more? What might be the right answer? No. Even though we think that. God can't like you more. God can't love you more. Right? God can't love you more than he does. Period. Regardless of what you do. Well, then why do I bother trying? Because it's about fellowship with God. Please get this. This is huge. I think this is Very huge. We live this Christian life not to try to earn our way to heaven, number one. Not to try to earn favor with God for the events of this life, number two. We serve God because, number one, we're thankful for all that he's done for us. And number two, we want to have fellowship with God. And that's what he wants with us. He wants to grant us forgiveness and eternal life and abundant life on earth, but he also wants to have fellowship with his children, right? You ever had a situation where like maybe it's with a relative, maybe it's with a neighbor, maybe it's where, with a boss, where you're kind of like hanging out with that person, but the fellowship is just super awkward. You ever done that? When I say, 
awkward fellowship. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Right? Like, my brother uses, my brother always says, he likes the phrase, you'd rather have a dead rat in your mouth. Right? Sometimes you'd rather have a dead rat in your mouth than to hang out with that person. Right? Like we're going to sit around and watch a football game together or something. Right? You'd rather have a dead rat in your mouth. Right? Now I distracted you by thinking about what that might taste like. <laughs> it's about fellowship with God. This life is about fellowship with God. This life is not about earning points to get saved. And so some of us were like, yep, I understand that. I read Ephesians chapter 2, right? We're saved by, you know, we're saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I get it. But during that time I'm on earth, seems to go better for me and seems like God just likes me better if I do all the right steps. Nothing could be further from the truth. God cannot love you or like you any more than he does, period, or ever has, or ever will. But if I'm walking in deliberate sin, is my fellowship with God, like, sweet? Probably not. Probably not, right? It's like that awkward fellowship thing that we have with some people sometimes, right? And so I don't want to do anything on my end that would impair my fellowship with God. That's the bottom line, right? So these guys, they got it all messed up. Number one, they thought that helping, help from Egypt might help. Number two, they thought, let's do some qu kind of quickie religious thing, and I don't know, there's a bunch of slaves running around, let's get rid of them. By the way, we're all getting starved out. If I get rid of my slaves, I don't have to worry about feeding them. That's convenient. But even at that, it didn't last. It didn't last. So when they killed, when they, so the picture here is, when they made this covenant, hey, we're going to release our slaves, they killed a calf and verse 18 and 19 kind of gives us reference. They killed a calf, and they all walked in between the two parts of the calf, right? Killed a calf, split it in half, walked between the, part, the pieces, we'll say, right? Well, and the idea was we're making a, you know, sometimes even when we, relate, when we make these religious deals with God, we want to, like, emphasize them somehow. So in, in, you know, Jewish culture, they like to emphasize with, you know, a lot of pretty graphic images. So if we walk through the parts of the calf, if we don't uphold this covenant, you know, then we're going to meet the same fate that that calf met. And that was the idea that they were kind of doing. So, Nebuchadnezzar gets briefly distracted by going to Egypt, comes back, and that's probably when people got, went back on their promise because they thought, man, looks like Nebuchadnezzar might be gone. Maybe we don't have to keep that covenant with God anymore. But that's not how it worked out. And then notice here, verse 17. I just want to point out one last thing. We'll leave this chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, 
and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. Says God, God says he's going to, God's being a little bit sarcastic here, okay? God says he's going to proclaim liberty to them. Liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. Do those things sound like liberty? Hey, freedom. Freedom for the sword, the pestilence, and the famine. Does that sound like freedom? No. The answer is no. Right? Can I point out one last thing before we leave this chapter? One thing we also need to recognize, rejecting the word of the Lord not only impairs our fellowship with God, right, but it brings baggage. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? When you live your own life and you do your own thing and you live just completely self-indulgent, right, it'll bring baggage. It brings bondage. Obeying the Lord brings freedom. And he's just making a little bit of a play on words here, I believe, to get us to this point. So, don't trust in politics. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in religious lip service, right? Repent if we need to repent and trust in the Lord. And as we obey the Lord, we enjoy better fellowship with him and we enjoy the freedom of not dealing with the baggage of disobedience. Chapter 35, um, just briefly. The word of the Lord, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So, another backstory we have to go through, okay? Number one, this is about 10 years prior, because now we're talking about during the reign of Jehoiakim. So we're talking about 10 years prior. Why does Jeremiah do that? Because he's, he's highlighting the contrast between what we're going to see as the obedience of this group of people called the Rechabites with the disobedience of these people that we call the Jews. Okay? So we're going to contrast the Rechabites and the Jews. The Rechabites were an obedient, faithful people. And so that's why we see the chronology not in line because Jeremiah is making a point here. It's, it's stuck in here to, to point out the contrast between the two. So who were the Rechabites? The Rechabites were descendants of a guy named Jonadab, and Jonadab was a descendant of Moses' father-in-law. You could trace him back to Moses' father-in-law. They weren't technically Jewish, and some people uh, trace their descendants to a group of people called the Kenites who could trace back to Cain. Okay, all that to say their lines kind of follow through the scripture. If, you, if you're so inclined, you could follow it all. But the point is, they're sort of a group of people who were friendly to the Jews, but they weren't Jewish, okay? And, uh, and so they had their own kind of thing. We see uh, one of the most famous Kenites. Some of you remember the story, and I just say this just to kind of wake you all up. You remember in the days of Deborah the judge? Remember that? And during the days of Deborah the judge, the Canaanites had a commander. His name was Sisera. Anybody remember how Sisera was killed? He got a tent peg driven through his skull. Right? Oh, see, you did wake up. Right? He got a tent peg driven through his skull by a woman named Jael. She was a Kenite. Okay, so you see these sort of Kenites uh, through the Old Testament history. That's probably the most famous uh, story of all of them. Judges chapter 4, if you want to go back and read it. We see also that Jonadab, the father of the Rechabites, 
was assisting in Jehu, with Jehu, the king of Judah, one of the prior kings of Judah, I'm sorry, the king of Israel. Jehu, Jehu's job uh, that God gave him was to eliminate the whole family of Ahab. And so, remember Ahab and Jezebel, they were horribly evil, and God said, I need to wipe out all the descendants of Ahab. And they did that, as well as a bunch of uh, Baal worshipers, and Jehu gathered all the Baal worshipers, you may remember this, in the temple of Baal, and he said, look around, make sure there's no, temp- no worshipers of the Lord in here, make sure they're all worshipers of Baal, and he kind of deceived them, and hey, we're going to have a big Baal party in here, and sure enough, they gathered them all in there, and then they killed them all. Well, Jonadab was helping Jehu during that time. So he's kind of this side character, if you will, not technically a Jewish person. But you see this line of people that have sort of come alongside of the Israelites, helped them out over the years. And some people would say that maybe Jonadab, during that time with Jehu, saw the effects of idolatry on the house of Ahab, right? Idolatry did not go well for Ahab or his descendants or Jezebel. And because of that, it would appear that Jonadab made his offspring kind of vow not to drink alcohol or to plant vineyards or to uh, build homes. They were supposed to dwell in tents as nomads. So I think of it like, maybe, maybe this is a bad example, but almost like if you have like a, uh, you know, kind of a, a group of people that are not necessarily um, Christian, but they're, uh, they're more known for sort of their lifestyle. Think of like an Amish lifestyle, right? They, I mean, where they're at with the Lord, I, I honestly don't know. But we know what their lifestyle is, right? It's, it's very distinct, right? And so these Rechabites were sort of known for this lifestyle of no alcohol, no houses. They were sort of nomadic. They're not going to plant vineyards and all of this. And they were very specific. And, and what's interesting is this line of people had gone on now for about 250 years, and they had very deliberately and very faithfully and very diligently obeyed this command handed down by their great-great-grandfather, Jonadab however many greats you want to say, right? So they obeyed the command of Jonadab, their predecessor, their ancestor, okay? And so God tells them, God tells Jeremiah to come and offer him some wine to drink. Now, we have to unpack that a little bit because does God tempt us? James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God wasn't tempting these guys to sin. So however you unpack it, some say that uh, God knew that they wouldn't drink, and thus it wasn't really tempting to them. Some say that Jonadab, uh, Jonadab gave them this command not to drink wine, and God never gave them that command, so it technically wouldn't have been sin because they wouldn't have been disobeying God. They would have just been disobeying their ancestor, Jonadab. Okay? However you want to unpack that, the point is, if Scripture's consistent, God's not tempting these guys. But the point is, Jeremiah is told by God to bring a bunch of these Rechabites in uh, to the temple, offer them some wine. Verse 3, then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, this, this is not our Jeremiah, it's a different guy, obviously, because he, he's a Rechabite, the son of Habazaniah, 
his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. So all these Rechabites, we gathered them all in, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. So Jeremiah, just for the point of teaching, grabs all the Rechabites he can come up with, brings them into the temple, the most visible display of, of Jewish worship, right? The, the most kind of the, the place that's associated with obeying the Lord, or should be. Brings them in and says, hey, here's some wine. You guys drink up, right? And so, verse 6, but, they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, our, the son of Rechab, Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall, know, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have a vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. So what's the point? They're explaining all their tradition. So this is how we know what Jonadab had told them, right? They're explaining it all to Jeremiah. This is why we're not drinking wine. Because... Our father, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, told us not to. Okay, fair enough. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwelt at Jerusalem. So we've been nomads. We don't build houses because our father told us not to. We've been living in tents. It would appear that since the rest of the entire nation has been taken by the Babylonians, and this is the last place left of safety, we kind of decided to hang here in Jerusalem with you guys, right? And so we see the picture set out, the scene is set, where Jeremiah can demonstrate this word picture with all these people that have gathered, the Rechabites, in the setting of the people that are disobedient idol worshipers, the Jews, okay? While the Babylonians are outside the city. It's a fascinating scene. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none, and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. So God is contrasting here. Catch this. The obedience of the Rechabites to a command of a man. This is a man-made command by Jonadab, the son of the Rechabites, or the father of all the Rechabites. God is contrasting the obedience of these people to a man with the disobedience of the Israelites to a to God, to the God of all creation, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who gave them their Old Testament law, the God who brought the prophets rising early and warning them and warning them and warning them, right? 
I mean, God has spent a lot of effort trying to get their attention, right? Repent, 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 repent. Obey the Lord. Obey the word. Obey. Repent. And these Rechabites, their dad said, hey, don't drink any wine. They said, okay. See this? What does that tell us today? You know, I hear this all the time. You know, the Bible's, what kind of fashioned is the Bible? Old-fashioned. It's old school, right? You don't understand the days we live in, right? It's not realistic to obey the Lord, right? No one can go the distance faithful to the Lord, right? These are the things that are subtly or not so subtly tried to put into our heads, right, by the world that we live in. But the reality is, what God is pointing out, the Rechabites can be faithful, you should be able to be faithful. They're faithful to a command of a man. I'm asking you to be faithful to God. It's hugely contrasting. So it goes on, verse 15. I have also sent you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them saying, turn now everyone from his evil way, amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. And, you will, and then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you've not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, small f, father, which he commanded them. But this people has not obeyed me, capital M, me. So what do you see here? God's pointing out the contrast. Number one, the Rechabites obeyed a man, but the Jews disobeyed God. Number two, the Rechabites were faithful to avoid wine and houses, right? Kind of a lifestyle thing. But the Jews were fully immersed in idolatry, and they completely forsook the God that had been so good to them. The Rechabites just don't drink wine, don't build houses. The Jewish people completely rejected the God of their fathers, the God of their heritage, all the warnings, the whole bit. Number three, the Rechabites' father gave them a simple command once, but the Jews rejected repeated warnings from the prophets, and that's the legacy of these people. Therefore, verse 17, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I pronounced against them. Because they have, I have spoken to them, but they have not heard, and I have called to them, but they have not answered. So what's God saying? Therefore. Verse 17 starts with therefore. Therefore, he's bringing punishment. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his promises, I'm sorry, all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. So God honors the Rechabites. So, please understand our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against sometimes our flesh, sometimes the enemy, but even sometimes against the world, right? The greater is he who is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, right? We need to be careful not to incorrectly identify the enemy we think we're fighting. 
we need to recognize that we don't fight spiritual battles with strategic means or political means or anything like that. We need to recognize that we don't appease God with religious lip service. We especially need to realize that God loves us no more or no less based on what we do. But it's all about having fellowship with a God who loves us and who died for us. We want to have sweet fellowship. And then finally, it is possible to obey God's word. If the Rechabites can obey the command of a man, then we can obey the word of the Lord. And not only that, but he gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to give us the strength to do that. Don't forget the goodness of God. Don't forget the goodness of God. When we stumble, God's grace is there. God forgives us. God restores us. He wants to restore that fellowship, right? You know, as, as I've said, if you have the experience of awkward fellowship with somebody, you know how sweet it is when, this, when that fellowship is restored. I can speak firsthand of that. I've experienced it in my life. And it's sweet. How much sweeter to have restored fellowship with God Almighty. Don't forget the goodness of God. Don't forget <clears throat> that God died for you so that you can be with him forever, so he can enjoy with you that fellowship forever that's available yet even now on this earth. Fellowship with God is available today. So don't miss it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us, that you've always been so good to us, that you love us so much, that you desire to have fellowship with us is just hard for us to comprehend, Lord. And so, Lord, help us just to keep our eyes fixed on you, not on our circumstances or whatever we think the enemy is. But, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And please give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to be obedient and faithful, even as these Rechabites were an example of faithfulness. Help us to be faithful to you. And Lord, just have your way with us and please be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.